First John. I think that to understand the difference, uh, the differences, you know, First John, the Apostle John wrote the uh, wrote the Gospel, uh, John's Gospel. He's also this, obviously the same Apostle that wrote First, Second, Third John. And to get us rightly on the track here, there is a uh, statement that C.I. Schofield made that um, is wonderful. He says, John's gospel leads us across the threshold of the Father's house, but his first epistle makes us at home there. And that is excellent, because if we, as we talked about you know, a little bit earlier, these things I have written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, John says. It says in his gospel that through the name of Jesus Christ is life. He is introducing Christ as God the Son, and by believing in him you have life in his name. And yet his first epistle is written to those born ones, if you will, to Christians, to us, and it's an intimate letter. You know, the, the word know, like we've talked about before, uh, the, the most famous one is 1 John 5.13. These things I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. The word know is in a pause, in this positive sense in this epistle appears 30 times. 30 times. Remember earlier this morning that Paul wants us to run with certainty in this life. We want to be certain. We want to be solid Christians. We want to know not only that we have eternal life, but we want to know the one whom we have gotten this life from intimately, and we want to be certain. Isn't that amazing? Some 30 times this word know, that's in a positive sense, that you may know that you have eternal life. These things I write to you, young men, because you know him from the beginning and so forth. You know, abiding in Christ... Remaining and continuing in close, intimate, prayerful fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ is a strong underlying theme in this epistle. The word abide. Some of my older Bibles, I have the word abide across First John because that's what I was taught early as a Christian. You know, and when we get into certain passages in the epistle, like you need that no one teach you and things like that, we need to take that in context and what the, what the apostle's talking about because some people I've heard that take that and... and you know, they don't feel the need to go into fellowship. They don't feel the need to go to church. They don't feel the need to have to learn from, you know, God sent men and so forth. But what that means is, before we get into that in the next coming weeks, is that the, the Spirit of God teaches you to abide in Christ. It is something that is not, that we don't have to go, how do I do that? How do I abide in Christ? Well, we, we know certain things to, you know, to confess our sins, have no unknown sin or whatever, but the Spirit Himself teaches us that our life is abiding in Him. Jesus said that in John 6, 57, remember? As I live because of the Father, so He feeds upon me. It's something that, that all the people that are, that are filled with the Spirit know instinctively that to abide in Christ is true life indeed. It's again to remain in that close, intimate, powerful, prayerful fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so with this epistle, it's the lining influence of this epistle. Again, where the word abide and abides. How many times do you think that appears in this epistle? Over 20 times. So we have the word know and the word abide. We want to be confident, remember? And uh, it appears in, in the various forms in this text. 
John tells us that the life of Christ within the believer will express itself in a certain way. And this in turn becomes a means of identifying the true believer in Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to show that the person who has saving faith will exhibit it in his life, in the kind of life he lives. Those of us that possess saving faith in Jesus Christ will exhibit that faith in the kind of life that we live. You know, it's, it is so apparent that John says in the first chapter of his gospel that those that receive him, he became right to become the sons of God to those that believe in his name. Give the right to become sons of God. And it's only right that a close relationship of an earthly son to an earthly father, that they mimic their father. They mimic uh, him and what they want to do. They, they mold them. They fashion them. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness and darkness did not comprehend it. That's the first chapter, first John. But he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. They weren't born of blood nor of the flesh, but they were born of the will of God. So we have a different life here. Okay? We have a different life abiding in us now than we had before. Before Christ, we were, we were natural, we were dead in sin, we were doing what came natural to us, we fed our own nature, we did what we thought was right. Now that we have become the sons of God, we have our life has been born, and not by our, but by the will of God himself. Jesus said, this is the will of God. Two times in chapter 6 in John, he talks about the will of God, that those would come to him that they would never perish, that they would have eternal life. They would, they would have this life that was from God's will. He said in John 1, 14, in John's Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwell among us. We beheld His glory, and the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, we cannot fellowship with God unless we have God's life in us. Think about that. We cannot fellowship with God unless we have God's life in us. And this life was made possible only through Jesus Christ. That is amazing. The life of Christ. So we ask that question on the outset before we get into this intimate letter that was written specifically to believers, specifically to the children of God, specifically to the, the born ones of God, specifically to those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. This is an intimate letter. And in this intimate letter, John's going to say, as any good uh, father would want to say, or he would, he's going to protect people, not only from false teaching, but he's going to make certain areas known for certain. 
Do you know what reconciliation is? Do you know that we are reconciled to God? Do you know what propitiation is? Do you know that the sacrifice that Christ laid down, it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father, matching with the prophets. Isaiah said that it pleased the Father to bruise him. So we live with certainty because we know that he is the propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice that God laid down for us, the only sacrifice that pleased the Father on my behalf. That certainty. I am reconciled to God in only one way, and that is Christ laying his life down. And the truth of abiding in Christ. And then he warns that, you know what, this true life, there's going to be antichrist. There's going to be deceivers out there that are going to come and they're going to give you a false idea of a false life or a plastic Christian life or whatever. Beware of them. There's all types of warning in here, but it's an intimate letter. And I want to stress that before we get into it. It's very, in fact, probably maybe Song of Solomon and there might be a few others that are more, that are more intimate than First John. First John is a very intimate letter from the Lord himself to his children, you and I. You know, when he starts out this letter, let's read the first uh, couple of verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. He is writing so that we as Christians could know what our life is all about, what true joy means. We have something of a possession that it was God's will that we have. Not because we earned it, not because we, we deserve it, but because God shed it abroad in Christ. And it's a joyous life. It is a life that nothing compares to it. Nothing. One thing's about, you know, my uh, pastor said this to me long ago. He was speaking at a conference one time with uh, a bunch of elderly people, elderly in the Lord as well as elderly in life. So one of the great things of speaking these things to people is that they know They've gone through life. They know that nothing satisfies. They've tried most everything. You know? And they know. It's much like Charles Stanley's always saying, if I was 25 years old, these things, you know, well, you don't know yet. You haven't experienced all of life. He's an aged man now. Yes, he's had, has experienced a good part of life. And so have I, and so have you. Some of you more than I have. We know this life. We know that nothing satisfies. But as we read these couple uh, these couple verses, I want to kind of get a little ahead of myself. This author that I quote, I quoted it before years ago, but this author is unknown. But as you read the first that makes this quote, but let me get back to the first four verses here, this first chapter. Okay, this is from the beginning. The Lord Jesus Christ is from the beginning, which we have heard. And then he says, which we have seen. 
He is seen, first eyewitness of this, of this eternal life made flesh. He's looked upon. In other words, he has not just, what it means here is that he's gazed upon it. Not just a mere passerby, oh yeah, you know, that guy looks kind of cool. They have, they have been with Christ. They have gazed upon him. They have seen him do things that, that blew the normal and mortal mind. They have looked upon, their hands have handled concerning the word of life. I look at that and I remember, uh, you know, Jesus in the upper room, remember when he, when he finally came through and he said, look at my hands, my feet. The life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and we declare this to you. This unknown author years ago wrote this. He said, I am glad that my knowledge of eternal life is not built on speculation or philosophers or even theologians but it's based on unpeachable testimony of those who have heard, saw, gazed at, and handled him, and who it was incarnate, and he of whom was incarnate, that eternal life. It is not merely a lovely dream, but a solid fact, carefully observed, and an accurately recorded We don't have the account handed down by philosophers. We don't have somebody that, that even might be a theologian that said, well, I put everything together and this is what I got. We have had these solid evidences handed down by men who have lived with him, men who have gazed upon him, men who have, the, this same apostle leaned back on Jesus' breast. This same apostle saw the Lord on the cross, disfigured more than any man in agony, Tell him that this is now your mother. This is the same apostle that took Mary in. We have all the accounts, the factual accounts of these men that not only have, you know, they can't, I had a dream. No, these men were actually with him. So I love that. In fact, I, again, I am glad that my knowledge of eternal life is not built on speculation or philosophy, even the theologians built up of, of some antiquated uh Scriptures, but it is built upon the impeccable testimony of those who heard, saw, gazed at, handled them, of the incarnate life. These are accurately recorded as solid fact. I want you to notice in the first verse that which was from the beginning. We see that this running through the Bible from not only Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. We see John's gospel starting out, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. His epistle says that which was from the beginning. So we are dealing with eternity. We're dealing with deity. We're dealing with God in flesh, who became a man. So that not only we would know what God is like, but that he would personally take our sins upon him and please the Father who issued him forth as a sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice for you and I. That's joy. No wonder when Jesus came out of the grave, the first thing he said was literally, oh joy. Because that's what it is. But look, look notice too, the, the descriptions and the titles of Christ in here. So we have from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, handled, looked upon with our hands, handled concerning the word of life. Jesus Christ is the word of life. Not Confucius, not philosophers, not good well-meaning uh, 
people that claim to be a guru or claim to be a special anointing of God or anything, but God himself, Jesus, is the word of life. In the beginning, again, was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, and he dwelt among us. He became flesh in John 1.14, he dwelt among us. So the first thing I want to point out here is Jesus, his divine titles, is the word of life. Look at verse 2, and the life was manifested. This life was manifested to the world in flesh. We have seen, we bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life. There's the other name for Christ. He's not only the word of life, in chapter 1, or verse 1, he's the eternal life in verse 2, which we was with the Father, and it was manifested to us. Jesus, when he pleased work, he said, Oh, Holy Father, I, I'm coming to you. He's coming back to the Father. He came down from the Father, did his work, and now he's going back to the Father. And they've seen him. He was manifested to us. So in verse 3, that they've seen and heard, they de- we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what truly our fellowship is with. When we have fellowship with one another, that is, that is so that we can all come and have fellowship as the body of Christ. But our, our fellowship is truly with the Father. He longs to have fellowship with us, the Father and the Son. What I want to say real quick before we get into uh, really looking at these verses is that we've said this many times before, but first John will make it evident. Do you know that the triune God was manifested in our salvation? He was manifested in our salvation. He was manifested in creation. That's who he is. He's a personal God. He deals with us personally, intimately, and he comes to us in his, the triune God and Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, if, if you think that my King James. That's intimacy. The Father sent the Son. The Son came down and lived among us and showed us the Father and took up our sin upon Himself. The Spirit not only was active in Jesus' life and raised Him from the dead, but the Spirit is what Jesus and the Father sent to live within us that Christian life. All of the Godhead intimately was equated in our salvation. And God wants to be intimate with us. So is there any reason why that we shouldn't rejoice when we hear things like uh, when John says, Our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things I write to you that your joy may be uh, dull, dependent on circumstances. You know, one day you're up, one day you're down. No, your joy may be full. No wonder Peter says in Acts chapter 4, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't. People say, well, you know, yeah, but, but they lived with him. Yes, they did. But Jesus said an amazing thing, as I live, you will live also. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do I know Jesus lives? Because the spirit he's given me, 
His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a son of God, Paul says in Romans. I know he lives. I have an opportunity to be very intimate with him in fellowship. He lives right inside. These manifested to his disciples. They saw him with their eyes. They felt him. They've seen him. And yet we have him right inside through the Spirit, always manifesting himself to us. Wow. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Remember when, when Jesus, two times in the end of Luke, he chided them for not knowing the scriptures, that all the scriptures uh, point to him, you know, from, from Moses to the Psalms, to the law, through all, all of the book hangs together on him. But he says this thing when he gets to the upper room and they're all fearful. He said in Luke 24, 39, Behold my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, you see that I have. Handle me. Look upon me. Concerning the word of life. Jesus made an amazing statement in John 14, 6, which everybody has to grapple with one time or another. Concerning this word of life, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he calls in verse 2, that eternal life. John will say in the next chapter over in verse 25, this is the promise that he's promised us, eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. And we have this life in him. Eternal life is not something we just hope for, that we might attain for, that, that I'm, you know, Grandma Betsy, she died the other day, I sure hope she's up there. She was telling to be a Christian and all that, but you know, you just never know. Yes, you do know. When we are born again and we have the life of Christ within us, we have eternal life abiding in us. We have Christ. He is the eternal life. I don't attain eternal life on my own merit. I attain it because He is the one that fills me with the Spirit. And He is the eternal life that has given me life. Certainty. Are you like that unknown author? Can you say I'm certain that my, my hope is built on fact? My build expectation, my confident expectation is that God will do what he says he's going to do. That I don't have just some philosophy that sounds good, but I have accurate accounts, you know. Um, we all heard about the, the thing about William Ramsey. I've told this before, but it's, it's an amazing statement. You ought to get his works. I don't know where you can get them now, maybe off the internet, whatever, but unless he's long dead by now. But he just wanted to prove that just the validity of the book of Acts. So he painstakingly went through the book of Acts, all the cities and other things, and, he, and by the end of Acts, he laid his spade down and he said, I cannot help but become a believer in Christ. These men saw these men heard. And yet we have something greater than that, if you will. We have him right inside. We have, we, we have a set of facts in front of us. We believe these facts. God wants to be believed. He has set before us infutable evidence. 
And John says, I write these things so your joy may be full. John desires our fellowship. Do we desire others for fellowship? Or do we want to just stay away? See, part of understanding the fellowship of the Father is the fellowship with each other that have the Father and the Son. You know, the same spirit that dwells in me dwells in you. You know, and and the same one who causes joy in my life apart from circumstances causes joy in your life apart from circumstances. These things he was joined to have fellowship, but more than that, God wants us to have fellowship. Jesus said, "Where two or more gather." He didn't say, "When you're alone at home, of course we can have fellowship with our being alone." But he desires that we would have fellowship with one another that we would love one another, and this will be a fact as we go in deeper in this, in this epistle. Listen to what Jesus wrote in John 17. And this was an intimate moment with him and his Father. He said that they all may be one, as you, Father, are on me and I in you, that they also may be in us, be one in us, as I have declared to them your name. And will declare it, that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. The love that the Father has to his Son is the love that we have in fellowship, not only with the Father and the Son, but with each other. Wow, that that is uh, an amazing thing. Jesus made it impeccably, seriously true and right in this discourse, John 17, that the Father loves us even as He loves the Son. Mm -hmm. You want to know how much the Father loves you? How much do you think He loves the Son? Think about that. Certainty? I know God loves me. Now when I understand the love of God, I know that He loves me. I don't only have the facts that I've laid down in the Word of God, but I know that He loves me. I know that Christ died and satisfied my Father. Christ was satisfied with God with, with, with dying in my stead. The Father accepted that and was satisfied, raised Him from the dead. He made me a promise. He made you a promise. Do you, do you live in that promise? He will come again. We want to be solid people. I know that God desires fellowship with me more than I could ever desire fellowship with Him. And I want my fellowship with the Father and with the Son sweet. I want to worship and fellowship with my God. That pales in comparison how much He wants to fellowship with me. I don't understand that. I don't deserve it. That's grace in salvation. Wow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, listen to this, God is faith by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called. God calls us to fellowship in Christ. You get the picture now? He was desiring that, that his fellowship with you. He's desiring that intimate relationship with you. This is going to make 1 John 1, 9... In 1.8 and 1.10, and I go in that order, if we'll see it, of this first chapter, bowing. Why is God speaking about in sin in the believer's life so much? Why does God allow us to, 
to, to ponder on this and urge us to come to him in confession. And if we say that we don't have any sin, we're obscured because he does not want that fellowship marred. He wants that fellowship unbroken. He wants that fellowship pure out of a grateful heart. And the more that we walk with Christ in purity out of a grateful heart, God is going to lavish fellowship and his love upon Listen. We're not even in the first, verse, first five verses yet. This is in the most... You want to know how intimate God is and desires to be with you? Read 1 John. Read his word. Wow. These things we write to you, verse 4, that your joy may be full. You know, it's at this point that Christians have something very vital and very important to say to the world. Jesus said again in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Full. Jesus laid the the, the germ of, of these truths out in his life and in his words. And the Apostle Paul and, and the epistles expound on them. Jesus said that the branch that doesn't bear much fruit, my father what? Prunes. You know? Paul says that we mortify the deeds or put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. God wants unbroken fellowship, sweet fellowship, but he yearns for it. The living God, I was, with, I was at enmity with God before Christ. Now I am his prized possession after Christ, and he yearns to have fellowship with me? Yes. Very, very much. Oh, if we would understand that, I think the sin would start falling off, you know? As we got and we do abide in Christ and realize his love, the sap that would run through it, so to speak, would cause all that dead leaves and that dead fruit just to fall off if we would yield to him. That's why the, that's why the Bible says in 1 John, as we'll get to it you know, down the road, that there's no need that anyone teach you. The Spirit will teach you. You abide in him. He's our life. I think at this point in our study, it would be good to, to just ponder Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Let me just read it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've died with Christ. You know? Whereas Paul says elsewhere in Romans, should we continue to sin? That grace is abound? Certainly not. How have you who have died to sin live any longer therein? I love, I cannot help but do one thing. Marvel at the fact of how much God loves me. I see it in the cross. I see the hatred of sin that God has. So he heaped it on Christ and he struck him on the cross. He hates sin. 
and he raised him from the dead in new life, and he beckons me to come to him. Let me ask you something before we go on in our study. Why are we still flirting with sin? Why? Because, just a second. We flirt with sin for myriads of reasons. But I believe in my own life that I've seen and in the life of some of those that have shared their life with me over the years, we don't realize the magnitude of love and the magnitude of the depth of meaning of the fellowship that God desires to have with us. He desires to live his life through us. He desires that we would be with him, that we would have fellowship with him, that we love him out of a pure heart, that we would do nothing unless we know it pleases him. And that if we have sin entering into our life, he offers the avenue by the, by the effectualness of his sacrifice to cleanse us from the defilement, to issue us right back into that closed fellowship. You know, it reminds me of that, that story that uh, C.I. Schofield uh, had about, and it was true back in the Oriental times, you know, they would, they would take a bath and, and, uh, and they would be clean. You know, the bath will clean them. And yet, when, by the time they walked the bathhouse back to their hut, their feet would, would get defiled, they'd get dirty. And so, hence, they're washing their feet. They were cleansed forever from when all that, that the, the righteousness of God was satisfied because Christ died for them. But yet, through life, we, we get defilement of sin. Through life, we get, we get stuff in our life that ebbs our fellowship with God. Does not take our relationship away. We are still sons and daughters of God forever. That was nailed to the cross, all of our offenses with Christ. Christ rose from the dead. I rose with him through faith. I am feeling forever. But as we go through life, the defilement of sin ebbs our fellowship, if you will. The immediately confessing of our sins cleanses. And why does it cleanse us? We'll get there in just a little bit. It is fascinating. The blood of Christ. It's an effectual sacrifice, the, the writer of the Hebrews says. It constantly cleanses us from sin. Hence that song, we can stand under the fountain of, of, of the blood, you know. Um, wow, look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let me just say something at, at, uh, on the onset of, about this joy. Peter says uh, in 1 Peter 1, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and we declare it to you. We have a message. We have a message that and it should be taught and it should be shown. The message is, we know this one. We know the word of life. We know this one that was from all eternity who, who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. We know the one who holds all things by the power of his hands. We know the one who makes the sunsets. We know the one who has... Uh, forgiven all of our sin that is coming back, that he had no beginning and no ending. He is eternal. He became flesh. We know him. And we're going to declare to you, God's light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
You know, some things form, some things, uh, there's a stantiate repeating. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, this is very important. Something happened. Not only did the veil split from top to bottom, signifying that the weight of God was open. He not only he doesn't dwell behind a curtain anymore, and some just some elect people can go in there. The whole way was open to God. From top to bottom, God split the veil. But we also see something else that the sky grew dark. God, who is light, cannot dwell in darkness. And Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross as a substitute for your and mine sin in the darkness of the curse of sin away from the light of God so you and I can become forgiven and cleansed and a new creation in Christ. Do you know that back in uh, Numbers 22 when Moses was, uh, was told to erect the pole, remember? People were getting bitten by the serpents because of their flagrant disobedience. And God said to Moses, put a serpent on the top of a pole and anyone who is bitten, you know, can look at the serpent and be healed. And Jesus equated that to Nicodemus as, as they lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so they'll lift up the Son of Man. We're all bitten, so to speak, with the curse of sin. We are all dying. We have deathly venom in our, in our veins. It's just a matter of time. It's called sin. Sin is death and separation. And we, we look to Christ. Who, the, who Paul says in Galatians became a curse for us. And we see him up there on the cross. And we're healed. And God says, I will make a guarantee that you are healed if you look upon my son. Because I raised him from the dead. I raised him from the dead. Not as a spirit. Not as a ghost. Not as a philosophy. But I raised him in that body that you saw him hanging upon the cross. Jesus said it. Not only did they see it in the upper room, but he said it, I believe, when, they, when he came, obviously, and said, look at my hands. Look at it. Look at my feet. Thomas, you don't believe? Stick your finger right in here into my side. Don't be doubting, but believe. And he fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Which, by the way, for a little side note here, Joe's witnesses explain that away, but they also explain the Bible resurrection away. You can't have half of God. You have to have him all the way. He is eternal life. He's not a philosophy. You know, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no philosophical argument. It's a statement of fact. And it's a statement of fact here. And as we walk through life, the more we turn Jesus Christ, God is not only eternal life and our love of fellowship with him and our joy, but he's our fact. <laughs> I know that Christ lives more than I know my name. Because he lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me a long life. No, no way. Remember that song? We're confident and we know. Remember, the word know in a confident, positive sense is stated over 30 times in this epistle alone. I want to know. You want to know. We want to be sure. You know? I remember when, when in that first storm we had a hot water pipe break in our in our uh, you know and it was up in a certain area over our garage going into the main part of the house. Boy, I didn't want somebody to say, "Well, I think I can fix that." I don't know, you know. We'll try. I wanted somebody that knew what they were doing. 
that has done that before that will get it done. How much more my eternal life? Some people bank on eternal life like they do a life insurance policy, you know? My life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's the way it goes. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look over chapter 2, verse 9 real quick. Just glance over real quick. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brothers in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause for stumbling in him. Look at verse 11. But he who hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's practical. I have never in my life seen something that's practical and supernatural in the same time, but the Christian life is. It is practical, but it is supernatural. Everybody, every one of you, do you know, have you ever thought that your conversion to Jesus Christ or being born again was a supernatural event? It was a supernatural event. God created you anew. God raised you from the dead. God forgave all of your sin and as Jesus said in five, John 5.24, remember our verse? That we've passed from death into life. He's the only one that can raise the dead. He's the only one that can give life to death, out of death. Hence the eternal life and the word of life. In the first couple of verses. But verse 6. Oh, yeah, I know God. I fellowship with God. I'm a child of God, sure. But yet we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Wow. We lie. We say that we're Christians and we have fellowship with God, and yet we walk in darkness. Paul says the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 are all kinds of wickedness and idolatry and hatred and strife and, 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 and all kinds of things, you know. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 lays out these last days, perilous times will come. He lays out a list of, of things that will happen by professing Christians, those who claim godliness but they deny the power thereof. We could go on and on. To truly know God is to have his life flowing through us, and that life is love. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses from all sin. This is a wonderful, wonderful verse. I don't want to be like Charles Stanley because that's his, that's his signature thing and I love it, by the way. But listen to me now. <laughs> to walk in the light is to walk in the presence of God. To walk in the light is to walk in the presence of God. Our life down here, however we perform it, is, is, is paraded and performed 
in the presence of God. That's why Paul says it's such an atrocity that we quench the Spirit or that we grieve the Spirit. You say, what is it to walk in the light? You know, you have all kinds of good definitions, all, all kinds of good things. But it is to walk in the presence of God. That's what it is to walk in, in the light. If we were cognizant of that and knew that whatever we do to walk in the light is to walk in the presence of God, would that change the way we live? If you say yes, repent. Because you've got some things that you need to understand that how we live in life, every area of our life, we are doing it in the presence of God because we are born ones of Christ. We are His sons and daughters. We've been forgiven. We're born again. You could go back. Let me, let me just reinforce some of these real quick. Not that you don't know them. But you can go back to, I'll tell you, I could say anybody, anybody, anybody here, me or any true person born again of Christ, this is for you, okay? In, sec, in Ephesians 2, 6, but we've been raised up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places of Christ. We have a position in Christ. We are His by, we've been bought by the blood of Christ. We are His sons and daughters by the very understanding, whatever we do, we walk in His presence. How are we doing that? Are we hating one another? <laughs> we have animosity. We have unforgiveness. Oh, well, you know. Jesus says, you know, he quoted this to the rich young ruler. I know it's part of the Ten Commandments, but loving your father and your mother, honoring your father and your mother, that's, you know, they just don't understand the type of father and mother I had. Or, you know what, my father and mother is just not the kind of Christian I really want them to be. Is that what the scripture says? You are called to walk in Christ and leave the consequences to him. He's the judge. I think a lot of us walk as if we're the judge. You know? Well, they're not quite as good as I am. We're back to what Jesus said about the, the, the Pharisee and, 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 and the guy who said, Hey, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You know? And the, one, the other one beats his breast and wouldn't even look into heaven and said, God, forgive me, a sinner. Who went down justified? If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Not only fellowship with you and I, but fellowship, sweet fellowship with the Father and with the Son. This is in our sanctification. We have this cleansing from the dominion and the power of sin. Now when we get to heaven, we're going to be in that aspect of salvation we'll, that the presence of sin will be gone. But now to walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with it, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. I love that. We have this cleansing from the power and the dominion of sin. Here the present tense is used. The blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Wow. Amen. You know what? Deity on the cross. Jesus was shedding his blood and doing the will of the Father. 
My father accepts that sacrifice without the shedding of blood. The Bible says there's no forgiveness. He fulfilled it all for me. Because there was an innocent substitute. One that went upon the cross was innocent. He was harmless. He was white as pureness can ever be. And he became black and dark and took my condemnation upon himself. And he... And, and the blood was spilt. The Bible says that the life is in the blood. He was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father for me. And His blood continually cleanses me from all sin. How does that happen? Hang on. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, this isn't saying, hey, there's one people out there say, I don't sin. I've never sinned. Sin? What do you mean? That's not it. Listen to, listen to what the, <laughs> the writer of the Hebrews says. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin will come into the life and say, you know what? It's not really sin. It's not really sin. Maybe it's a white lie, but, it, you know, I've not murdered anybody. I've not raped anybody. I've not committed physical adultery. You know, I've not done all these things. Yes, we have. The deceitfulness of sin will say it is the the deceitfulness of sin will take the omission from the commission and, and they'll blend them two together. Okay, in other words, sin begins in the heart. Sin begins with something's wrong. It's deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And deceitfulness of sin will say, no, sin is what you do on the outside. You know? You can keep your pet sins on the inside. Nobody's going to know. God's going to know. God knows everything. To walk in the light, he sees in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And God desires that we have fellowship constantly. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Another way is sin will be deceiving and sin will say, you're really not that bad. I had that growing up. I'm really not that bad. I came from a good home. I came from good stock. I came from good parents. I came from good morals. I have good ethics. I'm really not that bad. That's why people have a very hard time with the Bible describing who they really are. We are dead in sin. We're deceitful. Our heart is deceitful. So he... he uh, Who says that I'm not that bad? The truth is really not in him. Because it was so bad, the sin was so bad in your life, and so deceitful, and so rotten, and so black, and so guilt ridden that God had to send his son to remedy it. There was no other way. Hence, we're back in the garden. Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There was no other way. The innocent had to be crucified and judged for the guilty. The just had to come for the unjust. 
And that by itself is a miracle. But check this out. That shed blood on the cross is what continually cleanses us from sin. The act that he that he poured out his lifeblood and washing us from our sins is a continual presence. Did you know that? If you know that, praise the Lord. You guys are a lot farther in your Christian life than you think. This the whole understanding of Coming into verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession here simply means to agree with God about our sin. If we confess, when was the last time any one of us, when was the last time we confessed our sins? When was the last time we've come to God and said, God, I have offended you. It agrees. That is not our standing. When we get into third ver- the third chapter of this epistle, we're going to see that in Christ is no sin. It's us. It's an agreement that we are not acting like our exalted position. We are not allowing the Holy Spirit to have His sway in our life. We are allowing, again, that ugly head to rear itself up, and we, we are letting it entertain us for a while. Oh yeah, we might smack it down well, by the power of the Spirit, but only after we're entertained for a while. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that we can immediately come to God, confess our sins, and have, have our washed away, the defilement washed away. Again, when we confess our sins, listen to this, we must believe on the authority of the Word of God that He forgives us. I just don't feel forgiven. Is that what the Bible says? No. When we confess our sins, again, we must believe on the authority of the Word of God that He forgives us. And if he forgives us, here's the hard part, and I know some of you are going through this and have gone this through a long time. If he forgives us, we must forgive ourselves for Christ's sake. One of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is when we do something, especially in our past, is to forgive ourselves. Right? The hardest thing. And the longer we hang on to that, the longer we give Satan a foothold to kick us around like roadkill. The blood of Christ continually cleanses us from the defilement of sin. Wow. Listen to this. We need judicial forgiveness only once. Judicial forgiveness is like the judge sentencing down the law to an offender. We only need this type of forgiveness once. That takes care of the penalty of all of our sins, past present, and future. Do you know that? Do you live it? Do you rejoice in it? One time judicial act of of Christ being smitten on the cross for you and I, God takes care of that penalty of our sins, past, present, and future. That takes care of our life. But we need parental forgiveness throughout our Christian lives. God is dealing with us now as a son or a daughter in Christ. 
we're no longer have offended his holy law because his whole law has been vindicated, has been upheld, has been has been uh, validated, if you will, through the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. But we need to be forgiven as as a parental would forgive us. Lord, I have sinned. Wow. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He is faithful. Well, I don't know. You got to do penance for that, man. That was a bad one. I thought you knew better than that. You know? My gosh, Jeff, you've been in me long enough. You should have known better than that. What were you thinking? You're going to have to really pay for this one. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is amazing. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Proverbs, in Proverbs 28 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. See, this is another side of the sword on this epistle. I'm almost done. One side says that if you can, if you ask for forgiveness, you'll have forgiveness. But there's another aspect to it. Grace provides forgiveness and atonement. Grace also teaches us, as Titus, the epistle of Titus would tell us, to forsake ungodliness, to forsake worldliness. Because grace, the love of God, has been poured out in our hearts. So whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. This is nothing new. This is all through the scripture. But now we have the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, coming in. And now we have not only have been forgiven of past, present, future sins, we've been made new in Christ. We have His life in us. You know, following our salvation, listen to this, biblical Christians, you and I, we're still capable of sin, verse 8. That's, that's obvious. We still need cleansing, again, from the defilement of sin to keep our intimate, flowing, and close with God. I have three things um, before we, we close here. How is this forgiveness possible? Well, the means of it is the blood of Christ. The means of it is the blood of Christ. It's not what I do. It's not, oh God, how can I make this up to you? We think that, don't we? We like we're going down the road, and I had a friend in high school who did this and, and rolled his dad's truck, by the way. We're going down the road, and we see a jackrabbit come across the road, and we want to overcorrect. But he did that, and he overcorrected and rolled his dad's truck. That's what we do. We want to say, God, in effect, how can I make this up to you? What, what, what more can I do? How, I want to do so much good, I forget the bad, or what have you. But the means of forgiveness is always the blood of Christ. God forgave us because Christ's blood was shed. The method, how do, how, how do I approach this? It's confession of sin. I confess my sins. He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins. And what's, what's the measure of it? Here's where we sometimes come in problems too. What's the measure of the cleansing? A little bit? Or until we, you know, I mean, do we, all of it. All of it. So we come to Christ through the blood of Christ for our forgiveness of sins. We confess and we are cleansed from all sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have sinned. 
we have continually uh, talked about this in times past. And this is the message back in verse 5 that they've heard in the crowd that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Christ went on the cross because that was the only way to reconcile us back to God. It was the only way to bring us back to God. It was the only way that God can bring him. Let's look at this elementary-wise because that's the way, this is where I am. God had to send his son to the cross so that I, you know, if I was only cleansed partly, God cannot allow sin into his heaven. So I had to be made white and washed white and clean by the blood of the snow. I had to listen and reason to God and realize that my sins were like crimson. Now they're white as wool because God will not dirty his heaven with my sin or your sin. Heaven is pure. Heaven is white. Heaven is clean. And that is what you are. And yet when we walk through life, we have this defilement called sin that once in a while enters in. Because we are, we are still enveloped in a body that has a sinful nature. We are still dwelling in a, a, even the Bible says, even the creation is subject to bondage because of us. But there will come a day, brethren, to hang in there where we will be free from the presence of sin forever. Sin will never be an issue. Temptation will never be an issue. But realize this. When we sin, and sin enters into our life, that no matter where you are or what you are doing, immediately we can come to God in confession of our sins. And He is so ready to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your fellowship will remain sweet without fire, because that's what He desires. You know, God is not up there going, you know what, Cam, how many times a day do you have to sin? Seriously. No. You know what God's desire is? Is that when you do, because of your frailty and your weakness, which would get less and less and less as you mature in Christ, and you allow the Spirit to be the one that takes dominion over your body, which subdues that. That's why Paul says that the Spirit renders the flesh powerless. God is saying, I can't wait for you to come to me. I can't wait for you to come to me. I know what you've been thinking. I know what you did. I know that your spouse hurt you and you're trying to sting them to get back at them or whatever it might be. I know. But he desires that you would come to him in confession and he, because he desires that fellowship with you. You are already his. He wants to be with you in intimate fellowship throughout the day. That is wonderful. Our God is continually seeking you out. And that is a wonderment that I will never, ever fathom. God wants to fellowship with me. He loves me that much, yes. And the more I fellowship with God, guess what happens? The more my joy explodes. There are certain times that I have no viable explanation why I have joy. Why should I have joy? Nothing's going right. You know, I'm in the doghouse at home. I'm just saying this. You know, I'm I'm in debt to my eyeballs. Uh, you know, my dog just died. 
My house is falling apart. My car just won't run. Nobody, my kids don't understand me. You can go on and on and on. But yet you have this joy. You can't explain it. It's full of joy and expressible, Peter says. It comes and it wells up because you abide in him. It's no more uh, the product of circumstances. God loves you. And he desires fellowship with you. He wants to be so intimately close to you that you derive everything in your life from him. And that includes your thought life. Father, I thank you for this morning. Your word is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Through your word and your word alone, we know the heart of our God and the desire that you have for me. Father, I pray that this morning we realize that it's okay to let things go, that we can let things go in our life and trust you with everything in our life. I pray that you would direct our thought life, that you would direct our demeanor, that you would fill us, that we would be full of the Spirit, not, not with dissipation of any, any kind, that we would be filled with the Spirit and we would realize that you love us and desire that we fellowship with you. Father, I pray that you increase our hatred of sin and our love for the Savior. In these things I ask. Amen. Amen. Five, I believe it is, when John was up there and, they, and the scroll was handed down from the Father, nobody was able to open it, and they all wept. But he says, be of good cheer, the Lamb has prevailed. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the, scroll, the scrolls and loose the book. And what does he do? He opens it up. And what do we have in the first scroll? A, a conqueror riding on a white horse. But it's not the white horse. The white horse isn't until the 19th chapter of Revelation. He goes out to conquer and, and, and to conquer. Destructiveness, deception is everywhere. You know, I've come to realize that, that in, in my heart of hearts, I'd rather have a church that's small in number and, and strong in, in Jesus Christ and strong in the Word of God and able to stand these days that are coming because they are coming. And we can start seeing little hints of, of the fact that when the church is removed, there's a strong delusion that's going to pervade this world that they will believe the lie. The lie is that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world and there's no hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins apart from him. He's the truth. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to follow by me. And Pilate said an amazing thing when he was standing up to judge. What is truth? Because Jesus said, all that are on the truth stand with me on the side of truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? Truth is something that, that the world has been grappling with forever, and that's why deception is so rampant, spiritual truth. You know, I think all of us right off the, the top of, of before I, I get into the heart of this, uh, we need to be thankful for those that have, in our past, that have been uh, responsible for 
bringing the Word of God, for faithfully bringing the Word of God, for loving the Word of God, for nourishing us, for correcting us when we've gone astray, for being there and wanting and desiring our spiritual growth. You know, again, we, we can't go very far in this. I want to just recap. False teachers, destructive heresies. And what Jesus said in Matthew 24, take heed, which means this is predominance. Understand, listen, take recognition. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. This is a very key understanding. Christ means the anointed one. Many will come and say, I have the word of God. Many will come and say, look at all the men, quote unquote, God men that came from the East and the New Age movement, all these things. You know, it just took one man, Maharishi Mashiyogi, to come and inform the Beatles and look at, look at the generation that they influenced. Many people will come in my name and say, I am Christ. Some are bold like David Koresh and other people that say that, yeah, I am Jesus. Louis Farragon, one of the latest ones, uh, and so forth. But the deception comes in when they say, I'm the anointed one. I have a, min, a message of God. And your way is narrow-minded. Your way says that there's only one way. That's too narrow-minded for this sophisticated society. After all, we are individuals. This is the 21st century. We have a lot to offer, but we don't have a lot to offer God. Let's go back to the scripture. And if anybody had a reason to boast before God, Abraham should have. But the Bible says not before God. He can boast before men, but not before God. So, destructiveness. John in his second letter describes the deceivableness of these people. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not only proving his, his pre-existence, but the only one that is the hope of mankind. Without Christ, it's judgment. Without Christ, it's perishing. And God said, that is it. And these deceivers will come and will say, wait a minute. You know, okay, Jesus, we can't deny he was a man. But you know what? There's more than one way. You know, there's a lot of religions out there that say there's more than one way. There's some religions that say there's, there's more than one way that come to your door every week or every other week. You know, they're all around us. But yet, because they don't have the, maybe the, the language that we read all the time, we think, well, wait, this is old. This is talking about something else. No, folks, this is here now. I want to re I want to re say a quote from from Tim LaHaye that I think is just excellent on this matter, and then we'll go on. He says many will follow false teachers, especially in the last days. These cults, liberal churches, and occult movements, which are rapidly spreading all over our land, are speaking in the name of Jesus or of the Christ but never of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they will never talk about God as being the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's insightful. We need to thank God that he's raised up people like that. You see, doesn't that add validity to Ephesians 4? 
where he gave some as apostles, some as evangelists, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as pastors, for the equipping of the saints, so that we would not be moved to and fro with various winds of doctrine. How dare these people say that these are old documents, we need something new. You know, where does the Bible say that experience runs the day? Where does the Bible say that, that we, we live off experiences from one high peak to the other? It never does. Jesus dwells down in the valley of those that love him, that promise to bring them through the valley of death, that promise to lead them in their ways of understanding, that promise to know exactly when to let them lie down in green pastures and exactly when to go up in the, in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He is the good shepherd that has never left. And these false teachers are denying that very existence that Jesus came to give to us. He says in verse 3, again, by covetousness. You know what covetousness is? It is gleaning something that is not yours. Truth does not belong to false shepherds. Truth does not belong to false prophets. Truth does not belong to false teachers. Truth does not belong to lying and saying of, of lying wonders and signs. Because they're going to exploit you with deceptive words. Listen, I don't want people lying to my kids. I don't want people lying to my wife. I don't want people lying to you. I don't want people lying to me. But it says, with not only covetousness, these people with greed are going to take something that's not their own. Listen, the truth belongs to those that will cherish the truth. Belongs to those that will that will guard at all costs. Paul says repeatedly, guard what the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. Paul says in 1 Timothy that I've been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is going to trust a faithful men. That's why we're told to teach faithful men that will teach also. But it does not belong to falsity. They're going to exploit you with deceptive words. And God... Their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not lumber. Lumber. It's, it's been from way back. God has spoken about these people. And it all started in the garden. It actually started before that. But man's deception started in the garden. And that is one of the reasons why that part of the scripture is so much laughed at and regarded as myth. Because you take out that discord in the garden and, you, and spiritual deception has really no uh, validity to it. Well, you know, I'm going to go into Jude a lot. Flip over just a little bit, look at Jude 4. Remember, verse 3, how, how these, these deceptive people will come in with deceptive words, the judgment's not idle. Look at Jude 4. He expounds on this, for certain men have crept in and noticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny him. Jesus said, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father also. They deny this redemptive truth. They've crept in. Where did they come from? Paul was warning, speaking of the church at Ephesus, the same thing in Acts 20. Watch out, because you're going to be saying the same thing. Where did these people come from? They came from your own midst. They came from supposedly Christian origins, supposedly Christian churches. 
But oh no, they can't come with me. They came from Princeton Seminary. No, no, not knowing that Princeton Seminary has been apostate for years. Most of these people that stand behind the pulpits that have gone to seminary, or a lot of them, not all of them, are the product of the seminary that they spent years being fed under. Where do these people come from? Oh no, they can't be them. Yes, it can be them. Dr. Barnhouse says this way, if you're looking for the devil, look behind the pulpit. That's where the deceiver of righteousness will be. And amongst other places. By covetousness, they're going to exploit you. Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned. These are strong words. You know, and I think that, that what's interesting about, the, about both Paul, the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and, and Jude, is that they end their wonderful, uh, especially Peter and Paul, they end their wonderful epistles of so much richness with a warning. And it's all about judgment. As we talk about these things, especially in chapter 2 of, of 2 Peter, so uh, uh, linked, if you will, in contentual understanding with Jude. Judgment, judgment, judgment is going to fall on these false teachers. Look at Jude 6. Explains it again. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Judgment. People don't like to be to talk about judgment or to hear about judgment. <clears throat> but the Bible's full of judgment. The Bible is full of the fact that God is God. He's holy and pure. He created everything good. He created humanity to have fellowship with Him in love. And yet because of sin and men going their own way, God must judge sin. He must. If there's any part of uh, if there's any ideology or thinking apart from that fact, God is maligned. He is not represented truthfully. God must judge sin. And he judged yours and mine on the cross when he struck his son instead of you and I in judgment. I rightfully deserve judgment. I rightfully deserve it. I have gone my own way. But God caused all my iniquity to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and your iniquity too. That's the wonderful thing about the good news. Satan hates the good news. And anybody who stands up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have an enemy that is going to try to stop you, going to try to distort you, going to try to, to uh, discourage you, depress you, Rob you of your joy? Twist up the scripture? Yeah, as God really said? Is that true of me? We were speaking some time ago, years ago, uh, we were doing a, uh, uh, a, a Bible study, and we were teaching on the book of Romans. Well, I only made it, this one, in, in the book of Romans, till the third chapter, and I was thrown out. You know why we were thrown out? People complain, that can't be me. 
That can't be me. Read the first chapter of Romans that all the world is accountable to God. All the world becomes guilty towards God. Not only accountable, yeah, I'm accountable to you, but I'm not going to be guilty to you. But the language says we all become guilty before God. The, the depravity of sinful nature, the depravity of humanity, they never let me get to Romans 3.22. But now, those are the, some of the greatest words in the Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed through the prophets. That Jesus Christ is the answer. But you can't tell me that can't be me. Yes, it's you. I, I would amount that that if we if we read the first three uh, the two or three different individuals that really made a fuss that this guy's this you can't take it anymore. And by the way, they went on to replace uh, the book of solid book of Romans and the teaching of sin with the happy book of Philippians because he wanted to teach the joy of Christ. Well, let me tell you. Um, Jesus was fond of telling stories of how men were broken and yet they're alive. These teachers are going to, these false teachers are going to dampen that. And the very thing that gives grace or gives Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying for the sins of the world, is occasion, they are explaining the way. Surely God will not judge. Look at verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. <laughs> the flood. Again, maligned, twisted, laughed at, well, then, you know, there may have been a flood, but it was a local flood. Or there may have been a flood, but really everything died. Has God really said everything died? Well, we have fossils that prove that the flood wasn't, uh, you know, worldwide. Listen to that debate we have with Ken Ham and uh, Bill Nye. They're going to deny it. It was judgment. God judged the world because... It says that in, in Genesis 6, right before the flood, that he saw that every imagination of man was continually evil. God must judge it completely. He's not just going to judge a part of it and let the other go rampant. Well, it's a great way that you're in the western part of the world because the eastern part of the world, I really judge. Is God that way? No. God has no respect for persons. God judges sin. And turning the cities, verse 6 of Sodom and Gomorrah went through this all into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. An example. Men laugh at that. Look what's happening today with the homosexuality, the LGBT, all this stuff like that. The example was that not only this was going on, but the sexual immorality, the anarchy, the, the leaving God out. The men by themselves running amok. That's all sin can do is run amok without God. And God must judge it. Using his great examples. I even knew about the flood before I was a Christian. I had heard about that. I had heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody hears about Sodom and Gomorrah. If they know what sodomy is and so forth. I heard of these things as a kid. But he said there's examples. God judged these places. The flood was a worldwide flood. God judged. Look at what, look in Joshua chapter ten, man. Remember when when God said the hailstones down? 
on certain individuals. God has pointed judgment. God has ruled catastrophe. But nonetheless, God sends judgment. And we're all heading up to chapter 3 when, when the apostle here is talking about God is going to judge the world. By the same word we're talking about here. And false prophets will enter and say, they'll, they'll denounce judgment. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge us. We must understand judgment. Because if we don't understand judgment, folks, listen to this. If we don't understand God and the fact that he must judge sin, we don't understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Christ shows two things to the world blatantly. One, the love of God, and one, the hatred he has of sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, the remedy for their sinful condition, will not perish. So God loved the world so much he sent his son. Love unfathomable. But yet, he hates sin so much that those that don't believe in it love will perish in sin because sin was judged at the cross. And false teachers will explain that away somehow. It is not our timing here, because my time is getting short, to explain what all ways that they do explain it away. Flip on some type of, of Christian channels or watch TBN or something. I'm not denouncing all TBN, don't get me wrong, but I have had many, many people uh, say, I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm, not, I'm saying we need to have discernment. We have the flood. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in verse 7, a delivered righteous lot who is opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day and seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That word temptation. That word temptation means that it is set on somebody's ruin. It is set on somebody's captive you know, uh, allurement, temptation is always there to capture. You know, the Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Jude, at the end of his epistle, Jude 24, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Before we leave this, this uh, subject of judgment, I want to say this. One uh, passage from Psalm 11, Psalm 11 and a passage from Isaiah 66. Psalm 11, 6 says this, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What is the lake of fire described as? Lake burning with brimstone. It's a fiery judgment. God has pronounced that men apart from Christ are wicked. Men do not want to look at themselves as wicked. They do not. That's why we were cast aside out of teaching the book of Romans because we were too harsh. That's why men today will not accept the fact that they're wicked. Me? I'm wicked? 
My grandmother, who was, I spent majority of my childhood, I loved her immensely. If she, she died when I was young, if she didn't have Christ, she's, she, she's labeled as wicked. And if she did have Christ, she was a wicked person saved by grace. People don't want to look at that, but they must look at that. People would rather go, tell me how beautiful I am. You know? Tell me how beautiful I look. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, wow, I just got my hair done. How, tell me how beautiful I look. You know, I'm a great guy. I want to know how much of a great guy I am. Well, you know, if, if you were to be judged by a human court, well, maybe. But you're to be judged by the divine court. God himself is the judge. He determines what is right, what is wrong, what is godly, what is ungodly, what is wicked and what is not. And the only one not wicked in his sight that walked this earth is the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for I. So the cross of Christ, the love of God is shown uh, in the apex of history. So has his hatred on sin. God hates sin. And he judged it in Christ. And now these wicked, filthy dreamers, these false prophets and false teachers, look at the example of history, how God judged the world. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. But he reserved the unjust for the day of judgment. Look at verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. The Bible says in, in Psalm 119, uh, and elsewhere to keep us from presumptuous sins, Proverbs 30 and elsewhere. They're self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They're not afraid to speak evil of what they don't know and of what is not in the realm of the, the heavenly realms. They speak evil of. They're self-willed. They're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of judgment. They're not afraid of anything. They're their own person, they're the captain of their fate, and they want to teach you that. That's what all humanism is all about. Package it as Satanism, package it as health help, package it what you will. It's all humanism. It is all teaching man that man can do apart from God. That man's going to be fine apart from God. Man is not going to be fine apart from God. You know, if you look at, at chapter 3, verse 1, this is what Peter's doing. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle of both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. You know? Even if we know a lot of these things. Even if we, we, we you know, think about these things or what have you or have dealt with these things personally. Paul says, and so does Peter, that he's going to stir up. Make, make these things known. They're leaving. They want to impress it because when they're gone, they want the people that they're talking to be able to stand up and to know right from wrong. Look at verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a violent accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, they don't take judgment in their own hands. Judgment is reserved for God. Wrath is reserved for him and him alone. This is what Isaiah says. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpse of men who have transgressed against me. 
says the Lord. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be abhorred unto all flesh. Like we said last week, that is exactly the terminology Jesus used in Mark chapter 9. Several times, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We better give heed to the one that says, I am he. And if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. That is strong language. Ah, you Christians are narrow-minded. Yes, I am narrow-minded. I'm very narrow-minded. Because Jesus is. There's two roads. Yeah, there's a broad road. Hey, I'm, I'm an intellectual. Hey, you know. Live and let live, you know. And if there's a broad road, Jesus says, there I am. You choose. Are you going to go on the road where he's at and stand on his word and believe every word of it? Or are you going to stand on the broad road and have the applause of men and be a great guy? And, and you know, and I can live with your theology because it lets me breathe. It lets me be me and, and, and curiously uh, satisfy the burning conscience I have uh, that all men have. You know? what, what is it? What's the choice that we're going to make? I think I'll, I'll end here. I, you know, the rest of this chapter, before we get into chapter 3, is, you know, basically the depravity of false teachers. They're, they're depraved. They're cursed children. They've forsaken the right way. They've gone in the way of Balaam. They don't know the way of righteousness. Uh, you know, they're full of iniquity. Uh, describing in verse 18 and down, they're empty. They're, they're, you know, they're full of error. They're full of, of hypocrisy. They're full of sin. They promise the way of liberty, but really what they're doing is they're capturing you. They're slaves of corruption. And they're describing these perfectly and understanding what the Bible says about these people. And then in chapter 3, we're going to get to the fact that he is going to say, Hey, you know what? Despite all of this, now that you know that, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to come out and they're going to be mockers. They're going to run out to their own will. They're going to say, where is he coming? Is he coming? What? Who? I don't even know this stuff, what you're talking about. Everything's gone on the same. I remember 50 years ago, the sun rose in the, in the east and set in the west. You see this birthmark? I had it when I can remember five years old. I'm 65. It's still there. In other words, things are going on. What, what is this that you're talking about? You know, there's a, there's a great pronouncement in the Word of God in several different ways how God equates eternity with time. Okay, we see it in Psalm 90. We see it in Psalm, or we see it here where Paul says a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. You know, God is not like man. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. In fact, they're as high as from the heaven above the earth. Time is something that man is accustomed to. But when you when you are born again, you start you're in the spiritual realm. You start you start seeing things from God's perspective, and you start looking at the Bible as God's word of God, God's word. You look at the lens of this human history through God's perspective, and things start coming into line. These false teachers don't have that. So with covetous words and everything, they're going to malign you. They're going to lie to you. close with this. I know that uh, several of you know this, and I've, I've said it before, but years and years ago, um, Josh McDowell used to go on the campuses of, of this land, and he made a statement that I've, I, I learned early on. I've used it many, many times myself. 
Jesus said uh, in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, includes you, comes to the Father but by him. Either he is a self-deluded maniac, an egotistical man, or he is who he claims to be. And all of us at one point or another in our life must grapple with that. So we might as well grapple with that now and take the side of the truth. So when these false teachers and false philosophies and, and the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which is prevailing in the land now, it's prevailing in the land of the first century, it's, it's gaining speed as we speak. And it simply says they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They deny that there's only one way to God. They deny that he came into this world by a virgin. They deny the fact that he and he alone answers sin's tyranny. They deny the fact that without him, we are all doomed to judgment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Mike, you want to pray, please? Father, please give us greater insight and uh, appreciation for your majesty, for your justice, Lord, that our inner man would be built up, that we wouldn't fall away from our first love, Lord, that, that we would grow in, in mm -hmm. love as we eagerly await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when he'll be marveled at among us. And, uh, mm. 